I'd like you to open your Bible, if you have one, over to 1 Peter chapter 3, Hope for Hurting Wives. We're continuing our series, God, Your Family, and You. This is part five, hard to believe. This is our entering into our second month in this series, but it is very, very powerful truth that we are going to see today. Hope for Hurting Wives. But before we get to that, I have a story for you. A mother was anxiously awaiting her daughter's plane. She had just come back from a faraway land where she was trying to find love and adventure. As the daughter was exiting the plane, the mother noticed a man directly behind her. He was dressed in feathers with exotic markings all over his body and was carrying a shrunken head. The daughter introduced this man as her new husband. The mother gasped in disbelief and disappointment and screamed, I said for you to marry a rich doctor, a rich doctor. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. You know, sometimes things don't turn out the way you wish they would. One man said this, an archaeologist is the best husband a woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. (laughs) These are all kind of funny things, but Honestly, what we're covering this morning, I figured we'd start with humor because what we're covering this morning is not funny, not at all. And there's a lot of hurting wives out there. We've been covering God's plan for marriage the last several weeks, and what we have seen so far is the ideal of how things are supposed to be, but things are not always as they're supposed to be. As a matter of fact, there's no perfect marriage. But some marriages are, in fact, a source of great sorrow for husbands and wives. You know, many times when married people become Christians, the wife is the first one to accept Christ as Savior. I have some ideas on why that is, but that's not the issue. The issue is this. That is oftentimes the way it goes. What you then have is you have a believer living with an unbeliever, and there's two different mindsets now going on. This can cause real problems, especially, especially if the wife, once she trusted Christ as her Savior, believes, as she should, that she should live for the Lord as a child of God. In other words, that once you're a Christian, you should live your life as a Christian, as a godly individual, not to be saved or stay saved or to prove you're saved, but because you are saved. You're a child of God, and and we should reflect the character of our Father. Now, a question I've been asked many times by frustrated wives is this. How can I get my husband to become more interested in spiritual things? How can I get my husband to become more interested in spiritual things? Now, that's a good question. But you know what's very interesting about that is God gives us very detailed, specific answers. And what's interesting, we are not dealing with a general principle truth. We are dealing with something that actually focuses on that very thing. I believe this has been a problem in the body of Christ down through the ages. Otherwise, why would God put it in the Word of God? But He does put it in the Word of God. What we are covering today is God's method of winning that man to the Lord. It is also the method for getting a carnal Christian husband to come around to spiritual things. So this is not only dealing with a wife who's married to an unbeliever, this is dealing with the wife who's married to a believer who lives like an unbeliever, who's carnal, fleshly in the way he lives 
his life. In other words, he's saved, but he's not interested in spiritual things. Well, how do you get a man like that to come around? Well, we're going to talk about how not to do that and also how to do that. Now, let me say before we ever get into this, what we are covering today, folks, is not a guarantee that the husband will come around. So don't take it that way. But here's the issue. If he's going to come around, this is probably the way it's going to happen. But it's not a guarantee that it will. You might say, well, then if it's not a guarantee. Now, wait a minute. This is the way he'll come around. So if you're married to a man who is not interested in spiritual things, and you want him to be, and you should be as a wife, then God has given us the way to do that if that's going to happen, if you're going to have a proper influence in his life. The context of 1 Peter, the whole letter of 1 Peter, is how a Christian is supposed to go through life in dealing with suffering and dealing with trials. That's what it is. The suffering Christian, that you could say that's the theme of 1 Peter. And Peter gives us many instances as he goes through these, these short five chapters of situations in life, not just marriage, but situations in life. Okay, you working for somebody, your relationship, maybe your boss is an abusive boss, dealing with that. Maybe it's in a government. The government is abusive to its citizens. How to deal with that, an abusive government. The Bible gives us all these practical truths with life. And one of the areas that God chose to include is the wife married to a man who's either lost or carnal. Before we get into 1 Peter, though, let's remember the purpose for the wife. According to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him or a helper fit for him. So man was created first. God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I am going to make him someone. And that someone was Eve. And she was to be a helper to Adam. She was to be an asset to his life. She was to be a blessing to his life. Now we want to understand that at the very beginning because if you happen to be a wife and your husband is not spiritually minded, okay, or you know somebody who this message would be beneficial to them, why don't you point them in this direction to where we can be of a blessing to that family. But here's the thing. Remember, ladies, your responsibility before God is to be a blessing to your husband. So let's understand that. But with that in mind, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. And it says this, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation, and that means manner of life, lifestyle, of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation or lifestyle coupled with, with fear. Now we're going to break that down because there's many important truths in these two verses, okay? So what do you do when things are not going right? How do you handle that? All right? Well, number 1, we see this. Number 1's very clear in the first line of chapter 3 verse 1, the wife still needs to be in subjection, okay? Or in submission to her husband. Now, I do not have the time today to review and do a deep word study on this word submission. Go back a couple weeks and listen to the messages from there. Well, let me just share this very quickly. One of the frustrations of any pastor is to have people come a couple weeks after he's covered something, hear something, 
get all upset about it, and have a false idea of what he's saying when he covered it in detail and clarity two weeks ago. Very frustrating. As a matter of fact, it's extremely frustrating when those people are church members who weren't there, and they respond that way. Get the series, okay? Get the series. It'll all make sense. The Word of God brings balance to these things. Submission, subjection is not a wicked thing. It is the way to bring order to any cell or any part of society, any group of society, including the family. So the wife needs to be in subjection or submission. The divine principle is the key. And everybody is supposed to be in submission to everyone else. There is a way, there's a direction. Men submit to their wives differently than wives submit to their husbands. But everybody is to be in submission because God is the one who said to submit. Let's understand that. It's not the husband, it's God who said to submit. He is the master designer of the family. He is the master designer of marriage. God is the one who tells her to submit to her husband. And so we see that in verse 1, and the context is a woman who's married to a man who is not interested in spiritual truth. He's either not saved or he's a Christian who's not living for Christ. So God says the first thing you do is don't abandon your purpose. Don't abandon your role. Stay in submission, all right? And a wife is to submit to her husband in every area except those which are contrary, literally against the word of God. Now, here's what I'm getting at. If this is God, and this is the husband, and this is the wife, when a wife submits to her husband, she is submitting to God because God is the one who told her to submit to her husband. She's not submitting to her husband because he deserves it. She's submitting to her husband because that's the plan God has for her. She's having faith in the plan of God. Faith in the plan of God. You might say, well, my husband, he's got all kinds of flaws. Yes, and guess what? So do you. We all are flawed people. And you've heard me say it a million times. If God wasn't supposed to be in the center of marriage, marriage is a stupid idea. Because why in the world would you get married knowing there's going to be problems down the road if you didn't have somebody who could fix those and make things right? And that somebody is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the divine principle is key. The Lord will honor her faith and faithfulness. You heard me say marriage, above all, at the beginning of the series, it is a spiritual thing. It is a spiritual issue. Yes, and when things can become challenging or difficult or somebody's not doing what they're supposed to be doing, the other individual has a responsibility to a proper, spiritual, godly response to that situation. You don't, as the natural tendency would be for all of us, you don't take things into your own hands and become reactionary and let everything escalate, escalate, escalate until it explodes. Yet that is what most people are doing today. No, God has a plan and the wife still needs to be in subjection. The Lord will honor her faith and faithfulness. She must believe that the Lord's way is the best way. And by the way, this is what walking by faith is all about. And isn't that what the Christian life is all about? 
See, this takes us back to the foundational truths we saw at the beginning of the series. One of those foundational truths, do you remember what they were? Number one was salvation. Number two was dedication of the life to the Lord. Three was absolute faith in the word of God, all right? And fourth is a lifelong, there was the uh, commitment to doing things God's way. And then there was the following through of that commitment for the entire life of doing things God's way. Now, if the husband and the wife are plugged in in all of those areas, guess what? You're going to have a much better marriage than you would otherwise. As a matter of fact, I will say this. If both of you are committed and dedicated to God's way, your marriage will endure. Your marriage will endure. Look at this. See, God is looking for absolute faith in the word of God. The wife needs to be a help to her husband. She needs to recognize his needs and help with them. So number one, the wife needs to still be in subjection. But secondly, notice what it says in verse one. Likewise, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word. So there's a problem. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. If any obey not the word, they also, referring to the wives, they also may without the word, okay, how is that husband going to be one? He may be one without the word by the conversation or the lifestyle of the wife. In other words, in other words, the wife, number two, the wife is not to henpeck or nag her husband on these things, okay? The nature of man would be to dig in his heels, unless he's a man of integrity, who's open to truth, who understands, you know what, I can learn. I want to be the best I can be. Therefore, he's open to things that are true. But if a man is not right with God, he's probably not going to be open to that which is true. Verbally, the most powerful tool a wife has is the way she lives her life, your lifestyle. Not nagging, not henpecking. That will not do it. Notice it says without the word. Without a word is the idea here. In other words, it isn't what you say that's going to get him turned around. It's how you live that's going to get him turned around. You might say, well, I don't like that. Well, you need to have absolute faith in the word of God. God is the one who designed us. He's the one who created us. He is the one who wired us. And listen, he understands the makeup of man and the makeup of women better than we do. And when I say makeup, I'm not talking about cover girl or Maybelline, okay? I'm talking about the way we're wired as individuals. God's the one who did it, and he understands how we most effectively respond. Without a word. Now you can hear wives. Well, you don't know my husband the way I do. You're right, but God does. As a matter of fact, he knows him better than you do. And this is what he says on how to deal with those situations. One man said this, about the only time a woman really succeeds in changing her male is when he's a baby. That's true. So don't henpeck. Don't nag. Both of those things are a pain. And by the way, with that, and let me define some ways wives can henpeck and nag in this. Now, obviously, there's the verbal, but you know, there's the not so verbal, but nevertheless, he knows exactly what you're doing. She just happens to leave certain books about marriage around the house, hoping that he'll walk through the house and see it and decide to pick it up and read it, okay? That is not the way to do it. Now, if he's a man of honesty who's just ignorant, maybe he will. 
But if you are dealing with a man who's not interested in spiritual things, and you've talked to him about it already, and it's a source of friction in the marriage, all this is going to do is create more friction. Or this one, and I've heard of women doing this. What they'll do is they will, uh, if he's an unbeliever, what they'll do is they'll leave gospel tracts in certain places, strategic places, maybe on the coffee maker or on his nightstand or this place or that place. And so as time goes on, he sees these little plants in different places. Ladies, he's not stupid. He gets it. He understands what you're doing. That's not the way to win him. God says the way you get him to open up about spiritual things is by living a quiet and godly life. It's your testimony, the way you live your life, that will have the most profound effect on him. Or this one. Let's say he's a guy, he reads Field and Stream magazine or Popular Mechanics or whatever. So what you do is say, well, you know what? His new magazine came today in the mail. I know what I'll do. I'll put some gospel tracts in the magazine. And he won't see them until he gets to that page. And then, bam, right in the face. He'll get it. You're not going to win him like that. You know what? He'll resent that. He'll resent that. That's not the way to do it. Now, yeah, but you don't understand. I feel like my marriage is out of control. No, I do understand. But you know what? We need to believe God on this and do it God's way. Let me say it again. If he's going to be one, he's going to be one God's way, not your way. So number three, the wife needs to live a godly life unto the Lord. We see that coupling verses one and two together. Notice some of the things that includes. It uses the term a chaste conversation, all right? That means a holy lifestyle. The word chaste, that has the same root word as the word holy or sanctify. Same Greek root word, all right? See, here's the thing. You cannot argue with a changed life. Husbands and wives can verbally argue, but a husband cannot argue with a changed life. When he sees his wife is treating him with unconditional respect, even though you might say, but he doesn't deserve it. I get that. Doesn't deserve it. Nobody deserves anything. That's the truth of it because we all fail. But when she treats him in a right way, what happens in time is that starts having an effect. And that can bring and remember now, we're letting God work through this. That can bring conviction to him because he starts seeing a reality in her life that he doesn't have in his own life. And yet she's not nagging him about it. She's not saying you need to be like me. She's not saying you need to be spiritual. Well, you don't even, you're not even interested in the Bible. You're just a dumb bump on the log. Okay, you know, her saying things like, well, you know, of all the wonderful men in the world, I had to pick a loser like you. Well, that's not going to go very far. It's a big mistake. Men don't take kindly to that. You cannot argue with a changed life. A godly, holy, pure lifestyle is a profound tool in the hands of God. Not to beat him, but to have an impact in his life. To open him up to God working in his life. Secondly, it says... While they behold your chaste conversation, your holy lifestyle, you notice it says coupled with fear. The idea is respect here, okay? Remember, we have already covered this. What is the greatest need of a man? 
to be respected. When you respect him, you live a godly life and you respect him, you treat him with respect, that opens him up, that starts opening him up. But this is the way God works because this is the way God says to do it. This is what God honors. Don't we want the influence of Almighty God in that life? Yes. Well, if we want that influence of God there, let's not take it into our hands. Let's put it in his hands and let's do it his way. It's a matter, again, of having faith in God's ways. Now, it moves down to verse 3 and gives us some very practical things here. Who's adorning, okay? The way you are as a person, the way you look as a person, okay? Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair. Uh, We would use the term more like braiding today. Let it not be the outward adorning of plating the hair of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man or the hidden person of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now you might say, well, well, wait a minute. What is verse three and four saying? Is verse three and four saying that I'm supposed to just be, look ugly and wear ugly clothes and look, you know, totally like a plain Jane? Now, if your name is Jane here this morning, don't be offended by that. I didn't know it. No. Number four, this is not saying that a wife shouldn't look nice outwardly. What it's talking about is the emphasis, the emphasis, the thing that is your, your influence. It's not how you look as much as how you are as a person. The plating of the hair at the time Peter wrote this, now this is an amazing thing. Remember, Rome was in control now. And Rome had tremendous influence on the world. And the plating of the hair at the time Peter wrote this was that women would arrange large amounts of hair, some of it at times not even their own, which we still have that today, don't we? And some of it not even their own, and they would stack it on the top of their heads, and then what they would do is they would then go around and they would decorate it with jewelry. So it'd be like this creation, for lack of a better term, I guess it'd be like a birthday cake on her head, you know? (laughs) But this was her hair. And that's all you would notice about the woman was this massive creation on her head. God says, that's not your main attraction. Now again, it's not bad to look good. As a matter of fact, listen, any, any normal man would prefer his wife to look nice because men are by nature visual creatures. That's the way it is. But all you would see with the hair, all you would see was the hair when you would look at the woman. It's all you would notice. God says that's not to be the thing that's noticed. The next one here in verse 3, it says gold and, and apparel. Now, it doesn't mean you can't wear these things. And, you know, I've heard people interpret these, this passage, and there are some religions, branches. You know, whether they're truly Christian or not, I'm, I'm not making that call this morning. That's not the point. But there are some groups you go into the church and the women are. There's no, there's no, they have no makeup whatsoever on. Their hair is, is and I'm not against long hair, but their hair is very long and all they do is, is braid it and that's it. They wear extremely plain dresses, you know, like something out of the 1800s and so forth, and they think in their mind, and listen, if they want to think that way, I can respect that, but they think in their mind, well, that is, that, that equals godliness, okay? No, whether you're plain or fancy, that doesn't make you godly. Godliness is something of the heart, not the outward. 
It doesn't mean you can't wear gold. You can't wear jewelry. That's another one. I say, oh, woman can't wear jewelry because the Bible says in 1 Peter, you can't wear jewelry. No, look at the context. What is he talking about? What's the point? Okay. You can't wear jewelry. Okay. Well, those same women, I would assume most of them wear a wedding ring. You going to take that off? You going to leave that at home? And what about this one? Don't wear apparel. Well, now we've got a real problem. (laughs) No, again, you notice the terms. Who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning. And this is your quality as a person, your attraction as a person, your beauty as a person. The emphasis is not the outward. The emphasis is the inward. It's the hidden man of the heart. Do we see that? I hope that's clear here. Her godliness is her main attraction. Now again, in these days and times, men are bombarded with good-looking women. I mean, it's just the way it is. It's a society in which we live. So it's not saying a woman can't look nice. What it's saying is that's not your main attraction. Number five, the wife, though, in contrast to this, to overdoing it, I guess you could say, on the outside, the wife is to have a meek and quiet Spirit. Now, meek doesn't mean weak. Meek means humble, humble and quiet spirit. The word quiet is translated in 1 Timothy 2 2, where it says that we may lead a peaceable life. It's translated as peaceable there. So she is humble and she has a peaceableness about her in her character. Now, I glean from these scriptures that she is a woman, listen carefully, remember, She's married to somebody who's either not saved or not godly. He's not interested in spiritual things the way he should be. He's not leading the marriage nor the home the way he should be. And so here she is. Her faith, though, is in the word of God and in the ways of God. I think she's a woman who knows that the Lord is in control and that he is working in that situation. That's why she can have meekness, humility. That's why she can have quietness of soul. She has full confidence in God's principles and is at peace with them. And that shows up on her disposition as a person. She is not one who has panicked and is taking the situations into her own hands. Listen, it never works. The Lord says that a woman who has a meek and quiet spirit has character that is of great Value that is rare in a woman. And can I say, especially today? Proverbs 31 10, it says, Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? The word virtuous there, the root of that word means a woman of force. Now, that doesn't mean domineering. What it means is a woman who has strength of character, okay? Her character is very strong. It says further down in Proverbs 31 and verse 30, it says, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. So again, we see this harmony here, okay? It's an issue of character. How are you going to win your husband? By being in submission to him because that's the plan of God and by living a holy, quiet, humble life. Verse 5, 1 Peter 3, verse 5. For after this manner, in old time, the holy women, you notice that? Holy women also, who trusted in God. And by the way, that's why they were holy. They trusted in God. They adorned themselves in that way. 
being in subjection unto their own husbands. Isn't that interesting? They adorn themselves with obedience to their husbands by being in submission. That's, that's what they were adorned with. They adorned themselves primarily with godliness. Verse 6, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, guys, don't you dare go home and say, eh, did you see that? Don't call me by my name anymore. Don't call me honey. Only call me Lord. Just get your pillow. Go to the doghouse now, okay? That was not a good idea. No, it's, this is something that's coming from the wife. This is not a dictate from the husband. This is the wife having respect for her husband, understanding the relationship. Look, I am to be in submission to you with a, a meek and quiet spirit. I am looking to you for proper leadership. You might know, say, wait a minute, wait a minute. But he's not saved. He, or he's not, he's saved, but he's not godly. How can I do that? Well, you can do it because that's what God says to do. See, I didn't say it wasn't going to be challenging or difficult. See, it all goes back again. Do we have absolute faith in the word of God or don't we? It always comes down to this in every area of life. Do we believe God or not? Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Okay, Sarah recognized Abraham as the leader of their home. Peter uses here, he uses Sarah as his example because she was a beautiful woman. If you remember, she was beautiful, yet she was devoted to her husband. Her main quality, while she was beautiful, her main quality was not her beauty. Her main quality was her devotion to her husband and respect. You see, a woman who is applying God's method to her marriage does not need to live in fear. And that's the idea of the word amazement here. She doesn't need to live her life in fear or amazement, feeling things are out of control. Why? Because you can be sure that God is working. Because you are honoring his word. He always honors those who honor his word. He honors his word above his own name, the Bible says. How much more should we do that? While man has a free will, you can rest assured that the Lord is working in the situation if you are following his plans. Again, he always honors his word. The key with all of this is that both men and women are to submit to the plan of God. Not just the women, but also the men. And now we move into verse 7 here to tie this together. Likewise, ye husbands... Dwell with them. And we've already covered this when we talk to husbands. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You might say, well, how is a lost or carnal husband going to do that? Well, let me say this. The word of God is still there, and he's responsible. But remember, you're not going to get him to verse 7 by taking it into your own hands. You get him to verse 7 by obeying God's plan and trusting God to do this in his life. Listen, there are testimony after testimony after testimony. And by the way, if there weren't any testimonies on how this works, it would still be true because it's in the Word of God. 
But there's thousands of testimonies, men giving testimony, how that they weren't interested or they weren't saved and, 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 uh, and all these different things. And it was the change in the life of the wife that brought them to faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, there's a popular apologist, Christian apologist out there, and he's got a movie about his life. And this is the very thing. His wife got saved. She lived a godly life. He was an atheist skeptic. The changes in her life broke him down to where he started investigating it. He trusted Christ as his Savior. Now he's a defender of the Christian faith. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You see, marriage is supposed to be a duet, not a duel. Men, take time. What's it saying here? We've covered it in detail in in weeks past. Take time to love your wife as Christ loves the church, to sacrifice for her, to lead her spiritually. Now, one last truth I want to bring to light here, and that is this, number six. The wife in this difficult situation, and listen, I understand it. The wife in this difficult situation needs to fervently pray and not lose hope. Stay with the plan of God, but there are times when that's going to be extremely difficult. You need to fervently pray and not lose hope. I want you to look at this verse with me. Look at Psalm 34. My favorite Psalm, Psalm 34. Everybody probably knows that by now. It says in Psalm 34 and verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Are you walking as a believer? Are you walking according to the word of God? Let me say this. When you pray to God, he's watching you and he's listening to you. His eyes are on you and his ears are open to what you have to say. He takes it seriously. If you're praying according to the word of God, you are praying according to the will of God and God says he is going to honor that and he is going to move in that situation. Now he doesn't, he doesn't override the will. He can't make a person do something. But what he can do through the person of the Holy Spirit is bring tremendous conviction into that life. And he does it. He does it. But we have to honor his word first. So where there is Jesus Christ, there is hope. Now I want us to wrap this up over in 1 John chapter 5. So turn there with me. 1 John chapter 5. Maybe you're hearing this today. You may be here today. I know we've got several visitors. We're glad you're with us today, by the way. Or you may be a regular, but maybe in your marriage relationship, you've got all kinds of these things going on. I don't know the situation. I know this, if I can help, I'd love to, but God is the great source of help. But do you know where you're going when you die? For these things to really work, you have to first be a Christian. You need to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. In 1 John 5, verse 11, it says this, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Written guarantee in the Word of God 
Now, what does it mean to believe on the name of the Son of God? Well, understand this. We are all sinners. We are all sinners. To get to heaven, you have to be sinless. This is you and me, and, and here we are. We're sinners. God loves us. He hates our sin. For us to go to heaven, we have to be without sin. We are not without sin. Therefore, no one's going to heaven if it was left at this point. No one. No one. God says we violated his laws and commandments. There's a penalty that has to be paid, the wages of sin being death. Not only physical death, but separation from God for all eternity. God doesn't want that for any of us. Because we are already disqualified, our good works cannot get us there. Because good works would be just you piling those things upon your life. God says, no, your sin has to be gone. Good works are good, but good works cannot save. Going to church, being baptized, becoming a member, trying to keep the commandments, giving money, you name it, trying to be a good husband, wife, father, mother, you name it. None of those things, though, will pay for your sin. A payment for sin has to be made. How are you going to get rid of this? Well, if, if we are going to do it, we'll be lost forever in hell. But God says this, no, I love you and I want you to live with me in heaven. This hand representing Jesus Christ, God who took on flesh, when he came into the world, he went to the cross and he took our sin upon himself and he made the complete payment for all, leaving us nothing to pay for. He rose from the grave to prove it was done. And the Bible says this, if you will put your faith, your trust in him, that he is God who will save you, that's what the name Jesus means. If you will trust in him, he will give you everlasting life. He'll never cast you out. He'll never lose you. Once you're saved, you are saved forever absolute. You're secure forever. So won't you today trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? This is where the Christian life begins, is by becoming a Christian. And a true Christian, you're not a true Christian because of the way you live. A true Christian has trusted Jesus Christ, the Savior. That's how you become a Christian. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.